And so over these last couple of weeks, we've been talking about worship. And you say, well, why are we talking about worship? Well, number one, it's what we're all created to do. Every one of us are, I mean, we're hardwired for it. And so it's not about, well, that's just not my thing. It is your thing. You just don't know it yet. Because there's a connection with God that happens through worship that doesn't happen in any other environment, any other setting. And worship doesn't just happen in this setting congregationally, although that is part of it. It's not reserved just for this corporate setting. It can happen anywhere. And so, but, but we have to understand that this is one of the ways that we connect with God. And why am I teaching on it? Uh, and why have I been making it a focus is because I believe that our worship needs to go to a new level. Because this is what I know is that as we worship corporately together, the presence of God and the power of God will increase in this space. And that's what we're actually all here for. Whether we realize it or not is that we're actually here to connect with God in a very real way, a very powerful way. And part of the way that we can do that and part of what prepares our heart for that is through worship. And so, uh, you know, week one we talked specifically about how to worship and like kind of more practical application what does it look like so forth so on and then last week i was sharing with you that uh worship really is spiritual warfare and and i showed you this when in paul and silas and i talked about that when we worship that that the presence of god begins to move and begins to shift things and begins to work and so i'm not going to repreach it you can go listen to it but i want to share another story with you today about an old testament king it actually comes out of Second Chronicles, and I'm going to give you the overview and the backstory. And, and his name is King Jehoshaphat. He was the, the king of Judah. Now, Israel at the time was split into two kingdoms. There was Israel in the north, and then there was Judah in the south. Now, at one time, they were all one nation. They had separated. They had two kings over the nation. Today, Israel, the two, Israel and Judah are again one nation. So it's not two, but at this time and in this setting, so you have two kings. And so Jehoshaphat had a godly father who was the king of the nation of Judah, of the kingdom really, uh, of Judah. And his dad passes away, so um, he becomes king. Now for the sake of conversation today and to speed up my uh, message a little bit, I'm not going to keep saying Jehoshaphat. I'm going to give him a nickname. Okay, I'm going to call him J-Fat, okay? That's, that's what we're going to go with today. So you know who I'm talking about. His name is J-Fat, and uh, we're going to go slow with it. But let me give you a little bit of backstory on him. Is that he became king at 35. The Bible says that he actually followed in his father's ways as being a godly man, although later in his life it actually says that he followed the early seasons of his father's life because in the end of his life, uh, his father did not consult the Lord, did not follow the Lord in the same way, not saying that he just turned away from the Lord uh, completely, but he didn't trust him in the way that he did when he was a younger king. And it says that, uh, that Japhat here, that he actually followed his father's father's example and he didn't worship other gods uh, specifically the the god of Baal which was a pagan god uh, that much of the known world worshiped Um, and so and in that time there was a lot of intermingling of religion and so people would take godly understanding godly principles and they would mix that with truths or ideas of from the prophets of Baal which was a pagan god and they would say well we're worshiping the lord most high And I think there is a warning here for us as individuals is that I think we need to assess and make sure that we're actually living to a biblical standard. 
That we've not allowed culture and environment and, and um, other teachings to come into our life. Why? Because they actually will reduce the effectiveness of God's power in your life. Why? Because it's not pure. And if we're not careful, we can allow even ideas from other people to cloud our view of God, how we worship God, as opposed to really seeing him for who he is and what he desires to do. And so, this, the, really, we're going to look at the whole, this whole passage and story is really in Second Chronicles chapter, starts in chapter 17. We pick up the story, which I've already summarized some of it for you. We're going to walk through all the way to chapter 20, but I'm going to paraphrase 17, 18, and 19 for you, just to give you some context as to what's going on. And so, in chapter 17, Japhat becomes king. Over uh, Judah. And so he begins to walk in the ways of the Lord. But in uh, chapter 18, he makes an alliance with a king named Ahab. Now, Ahab was the king of Israel. And so they were kind of allied nations, if you will. They would fight every now and then. But a lot of times they would fight together and this and that against other nations. But Ahab was a wicked king. And Jehoshaphat was a godly king. Very different. And, And so have you ever made like a bad friend choice? Anybody? Like, have you ever, like, do you wish, you you ever have a friend that you wish you could unfriend like on Facebook? You know, as I was, I'm going to let you into my mind a little bit this week as I was pondering and reading and thinking about this. I was thinking about, you know, like when you're dating somebody, you can just like break up and it's over. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like a Dear John letter. Hey, it's not you, it's me. I just, but we don't, we can't do that with friends. Like maybe we should implement that. Like a friend dump. Like I'm going to dump you as a friend right now because we just don't need to be connected anymore. And uh, apparently you didn't think that was as funny as I did. But I thought it was pretty funny. And, uh, you know, but, I, but there is something to be said, though, is that many times when things are going awry in our life, we might need to assess the relationships that we're in and the people that we're around and the influence that we're allowing from other people into our life because not everybody is out for your best. Let me say it another way. When God wants to bless you, he will send a person into your life. When the enemy wants to destroy you, he will send a person into your life. And so our responsibility is to discern, is this a friend or is this a foe? That's one of the wisest things I can, why? Because the Bible tells us is that, um, that bad company, what? Will corrupt, will ruin good morals. Now, we want to put that on the wall of our kids' rooms, but what about us? What about the people that we're around? What about the conversations that we are involved with that our heart is grieved by? And we know, I I probably shouldn't, but it's no big deal. It's just conversation. Yeah, but it's affecting your heart, and your heart affects your worship. And so what happens is, is that Japhat makes this alliance with King Ahab, and they go to war. Ahab actually gets killed in in the battle. He actually tells Japheth, he says, hey, I want you to go out in your kingly robes because he knew the army they were fighting were coming after him. He dresses up like a a, a normal soldier. They actually come and think that Japheth is the king of Israel and they realize that it's not him. The Lord protects him. They leave. Some guy throws a random arrow, just shoots it. And it hits Ahab right in between his armor. And he dies on the ride home. Now the Lord told him all that was going to happen. 
And, and, and you can actually see, if you go and, and really read this, is that Ahab actually called prophets, over 400 prophets, and said, come and tell us, will the Lord bless us in our endeavor to go into this battle? And they're all like, of course it will. Of course he will. Go and you'll be victorious. And Japheth said, hey, is there not a prophet of the Lord anywhere? And Ahab goes, yeah, but that guy only prophesies doom and gloom and bad. He, man, he's a bad deal. He never says anything good about me. Wait, because you're a wicked king. But Joseph had, made the, had the thought and he said, hey, I'd like that guy to come. And he prophesies and tells Ahab, hey, if you go to war, you're going to die. And in his arrogance and in his pride, Ahab says, let's go anyways. And he dies. And so on the backside of this is that, and, and this is really jumps over into chapter 19, is that Japheth actually begins to repent to the Lord because somebody actually, when he comes back, they say, hey, you've done an unwise thing. You, you've made an alliance with, with a wicked king that God never told you to. And so, but chapter 19 is all about Jehoshaphat really bringing the nation of Israel back to where it should have been. He goes around, starts telling everybody, hey, get rid of all of your, all of your paraphernalia of Baal. Get rid of all the Asherah poles. Get rid of all this stuff. So he starts cleaning the place out. And he starts returning the nation. And really, as an act of repentance, he starts leading the nation back to the Lord. So they've gone to war. It's not been a great thing. He comes back. He repents. He's getting all of his affairs in order, getting the nation squared away. Have you ever done this? Like I know we're in like springtime now, right? So spring cleaning, like some of you may want to pull everything out of your house, like you're moving and then put it back in and then just leave some stuff at the curb. Some people like to go that degree. That's not me. But, uh, you know, but there are times that you need to what? Just kind of reassess some things and clean out some closets and clean out that junk drawer that nobody knows what's in there. And, uh, you know, and that's kind of what's happening here in a spiritual sense. Is it King Japhat is going through the nation and saying, hey, we're clearing out the closets. We're getting rid of anything that doesn't declare that God is the Lord of our life. And so we're going to worship him. And so we start off. <clears throat> um, now. And, and this is just good for you to know because some of you are starting to make some, some decisions spiritually. Just like the nation of Judah is here. Where they're clearing some things out. And even, you know, I know we're not in January, but yet you're like, hey, this year I'm going to make some shifts spiritually. But you have to be aware that the enemy does not like that. And he doesn't want you getting your spiritual act together, if you will. And he will attack. And he will come. And so I want to give you actually the antidote or the way that you can actually resist the enemy when those things begin to happen. Because in chapter 19, it's all about them cleaning out the closets. It's all about them getting things back squared away the way that they needed to be. And then all hell begins to break loose. I mean, just it happens. And so we're going to pick up the story here. And I tell you that because, and I don't mean to, uh, you know... Um, I don't want to discourage you, but I do want to prepare you. And when you start taking steps forward in your walk with God, in your relationship with God, you begin to make some spiritual disciplines in your life, the enemy will fight. Why? Because he doesn't give up ground freely. And if he gets an advantage, he wants to keep that advantage. 
And so we have to be aware of this. And so picking up in chapter 20 of Second Chronicles 20, starting in verse 1, it says, After this, so after the nation's gotten cleaned up, the armies of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some of the Munites declared war on Jehoshaphat. You're like, hold up, God. Like, I, I, I just got everything straight. Why are these guys coming after me? I thought you were going to protect me. I thought you were going to take care of me. And so, so messengers came and they told uh, Jehoshaphat, It said, a vast army from Edom is marching against you from beyond the Dead Sea. And they're already at En Gedi. To kind of give you some idea, this army at minimal was about 120,000 soldiers. Judah was not a large nation. They were outnumbered approximately five to one. So this is really bad news. Like one of these armies probably could have defeated Judah by themselves. But for when, and we don't know why, but they decide, hey, we're going to team up. And it, maybe it had to do with his connection with Ahab. I don't know. It does, the Bible doesn't speak to it. But for whatever reason, when, Ahab, or when um, Japheth starts to get the nation back in order, then the enemy attacks. And when you start getting your spiritual house in order, the enemy will attack to discourage you, to discredit you, to get you off of what you're doing. Why? Because he knows if you continue with the disciplines that you're establishing, he will lose. And so he says, hey, if I can just head this off now, we're going to take care of this. And this is what happens. And so it says in verse 3, it says that Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news. He wasn't scared. He wasn't worried. He was terrified. The word terrified means to be literally overcome with terror. He was terrified at this news and he begged the Lord for guidance. I actually appreciate that it doesn't say, well, he sought the Lord. He prayed. No, he begged. He had, even though, and and here's what we can take away from this. I mean, like even just, Let's just bring it into our world a little bit. How many of you get a little terrified listening to the news right now? You read things and it's like, oh my gosh, what's happening? I mean, you know, there's, there's talk of, of nuclear weapons and that's a bad deal for everybody. And it's easy to become overwhelmed by what we see, by what we hear, by what we're perceiving to happen in the world. Our economy's all over the place. There's a lot of uncertainty about the future. And you can become overwhelmed and to the point of being terrified. And what happens is you can actually become paralyzed with fear. But I love that. King Japheth here has enough sense that even though he's terrified that he, he at least turns to the Lord. Whether that was a pretty polished prayer or whether that was just an ugly crying prayer. I don't know. Could have been either one. But he also begins to, he, he, the king also orders the whole nation to begin a fast. So what do you do when you're facing spiritual battle? You're like, well, how do I know? When things are coming at you and you are overwhelmed. It's time to turn to the Lord because you are beyond your capacity and ability to handle it. Look, and there are seasons, and I'm not saying that the enemy comes all the time. That's not even scriptural. 
You go read Luke 4 where Jesus was in the wilderness. It says that the enemy came to test him, to try him, to tempt him for 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, he realizes I'm not gaining ground, but I will come back at a more opportune time and moment. So there are times that the enemy begins to put on more of a full court press. He begins to put on the pressure more. And in those moments, those are make and break. And why does the enemy attack? Many times it's because the thing that we've been standing for, the thing we've been believing for, the thing we've been trusting the Lord in, we're right there and he knows it. And he's like, man, I've got to stop this before that breakthrough comes, before that, that, what that, that answer to prayer comes. And so the enemy can sense that, not saying that he knows it, but he can sense like, man, and, and I've seen this happen multiple. The time that I wanted to quit the most is the time that I saw the greatest breakthroughs in my life. But right before that, all I wanted to do was hit the eject button. Everything in me just says, whoa, this is not working. And it's, and look, if we were all honest, it's much easier to get to that place than we want to admit. To just say, man, this just ain't working. That thing, man, I'm tired of praying. I'm tired of going to church. I'm tired of asking the Lord. I'm tired of... The key is actually you got to stop looking at your problem. And you got to turn to the Lord. And that's what uh, King Japheth does here. So he was terrified. But yet he sought the Lord. And so in verse 4, it says, So people from from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. So Japheth goes from being terrified to begging. Now he's seeking. And there's a difference. There's nothing wrong with being overwhelmed. We all get overwhelmed. But how do you change from being overwhelmed to turning to seek the Lord? It's a decision. And I don't mean to minimize it, but that is the truth. Is that it is a decision that we have to make. Now, here's what I want you to, to, to take away from this. Is that you can be afraid and yet set yourself to seek the Lord. You don't have to be this great person of faith and power and ability. It's like, I've got all my stuff together, so now I can go seek the Lord. You will never go seek the Lord. No, we go to God in our weakness to find strength. We go to God in our ignorance to find wisdom. We go to God in our franticness to find peace. It is an exchange, but we've got to go to him first. And so we we see this here and as it plays out. And so the nation begins to seek the Lord. They're fasting, they're praying, they're seeking the Lord about what do we do? There's this vast army. In verse 12, it says, oh God, won't you stop them? Now you've prayed that prayer before. God, you can just make this all go away. Why don't you just do that? would be great. I'd appreciate it. If we could expedite that and get overnight shipping, it would be even better. Like, you know, I mean, Lord, just make it stop. And they acknowledge, they say, look, we're powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. We do not know what to do. You ever feel like that? What am I supposed to do? But again, I love the way that this is communicated. We don't know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. They knew where to turn when they didn't know what to do. And sometimes we can get caught up, especially in our culture today, of running to everybody else, everything else. Like, hey, did you pray about it before you Googled it? Did you pray about it before you made the phone call? Like, did you turn to the Lord for help? 
Because here's what you don't want to do when the pressure is on, is you don't want to go and get bad input or bad advice. Lord, direct me. Who should I call? I don't have to know the answers, but who, should I, who, who can give me godly insight and godly wisdom in this moment? And then you can call and you can have the conversation. You can, the Lord may speak directly to you. See, the nation didn't know what to do, but they knew where to run. And so there was this one gentleman in verse, I'm going to read verses 15 through 17, named Gehazel. And I may not have pronounced his name right, but that's my best attempt. But he, he, the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he began to prophesy, which the word prophesy simply means to say what God is saying. And it says, listen, all the people of Judah and of Jerusalem, uh, listen, King Jehoshaphat, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Wait, we're terrified. But God says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. In other words, don't lose your courage. The word discourage means to remove your courage, to remove your strength. It says, for the battle is not yours, but it is God's. It says, tomorrow march out against them. You will find them coming through the ascent of Ziz at the end of the valley that opens into the wilderness of Jeruel. It says, but you will not even need to fight. It says, take your positions and then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you. O people of Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. That's the first thing we need to remember any time that we're facing a battle. God has not left me. God has not forsaken me. Just because there's resistance doesn't mean that I'm alone. The Bible actually says multiple times, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I will be with you through the ends of the ages. One translation, I believe it's the Amplified, says, I will not relax my hold upon you. God never leaves you. Now, our awareness of him, we may not always be aware. But by faith, it's not about what I feel. God, I thank you that by faith, your word says that you never leave me. You never, you're always on my side. And I thank you that even in the midst of this moment, no matter how I feel, your word declares that you are with me. And if you're with me, you're for me. And if I'm with you, you're going to fight my battles. And just as it says here to the nation of Judah, he says that you won't even need to fight. Now think about this. He says, you don't need to fight, but take your position and stand. It doesn't mean that I'm just, all right, God, you got it. No worries. No, I got to take my position. Well, how do I do that? I need to go get the word of God. I need to get the counsel of God, the wisdom of God. Ephesians talks about the spiritual armor. It says, having done all to stand, stand. Right? I would encourage you, go read about it. And what does it do? It goes through the whole armor of a Roman soldier. And it begins to give instructions about, as a believer, how we fight. Spiritual battles. And it says, look, you're not fighting against flesh and blood. You're not doing it. This is spiritual. And what I'm telling you is that things are way more spiritual than we think. Some of you are believing God for a a financial breakthrough. And you're thinking a check's going to come and fix it. It's actually spiritual. And if you'll take care of the spiritual stuff, the financial thing will get taken care of. Give you an example of this. 
This isn't necessarily a financial one, but me and Dara, we were, had served at a church for a number of years in Kansas. We were youth pastors. We knew the Lord was uh, telling us that, that our season there was coming to a close, so forth, so on. And, and didn't really know what all that meant, but the Lord told me to get out of debt. Now, this was over the span of about three and a half years, by the way. But the Lord told me, and, and so, man, we started busting it. We started, you know, we did the whole Dave Ramsey thing. We just, I forget how he says it, but we were paying off debt like our hair was on fire. You know, I mean, just anything and everything we could do to get out of debt, man, we were just doing it. And, uh, but we, you know, we paid off a lot. And the Lord provided, I mean, it was, there's miracle story after miracle story over the span about that three-year period. And um, so, but long, fast forward, <clears throat> we went to Brazil to actually look at planting a church in Brazil. Uh, we knew a missionary and she said, hey, I'm not a pastor, but the Lord's put it in my heart to have a, an American couple come and plant a church here in Brazil. Would you guys be willing to come and consider it? I've never had a desire to live in a foreign country. I love the nation. I feel called to this nation. I, I, you know, it's just the way it is. But I was like, Lord, if you want me to go, I'll go. And before I even got on the plane, I had the thought. Man, I'm, I think I'm moving to Brazil. This is crazy. I've never wanted to do this. We go there, great time, incredible ministry, got home, I was like, that ain't it. And I'm lost, I'm confused a little bit. I'm like, God, if that's not it, then what is it? See, sometimes you do have to move in a direction for God to lead you. You can't just sit still, you got to do your part. Now remember, I'm talking about spiritual things here. This is not natural things. There are natural elements here. We came home and prayed for couple months we actually did 21 days because that was in november we went to brazil in january we did 21 days of prayer and fasting and we're like it's like the heavens are silent i'm like god why have you forsaken us i can be a little dramatic i'm just saying i would like to say that's just up here but that's not true i can be real dramatic in here but i felt that way and so i i mean and it was like i mean i did my 21 i'm like lord I didn't eat for X number of days. You were supposed to talk to me. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I sought you for 21 days. I did the fast, man. I was committed to it. I didn't cheat not one day. And where are you at? Nothing. Me and Derek talking. Right, man. What have we not done that the Lord told us to do? I don't know. So he thought about it, thought about it, and thought about it. A few days later, I said, I think the only thing I can think of is that we still got a little bit of debt. Just a little bit, not a lot. Well, it wasn't a lot in comparison to what I had. A couple thousand dollars, two, three thousand bucks. Which wasn't a lot compared to what I had. And I said, I think we need to pay that off. I think that's it. I, I, you know, that's the only thing I can think of is that the Lord's not going to speak until we fully obey what he told us to do. So we paid off our debt. Fast forward about another two months from then, the Lord speaks to me clearly and says, hey, leave for the land that I'm going to show you, which sounds great. And we preach that. Oh, praise God. Hold up. Let me break this down for you. So I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to sell my house and I'm going to move where? And I got no answer. We didn't sell our house. We moved anyways. Paying for a house 700 miles away. Lord, I'm in obedience to you. And we're praying and praying and praying and seeking the Lord. Now, this whole process takes about six or eight months. 
nine months, whatever it was. Ultimately, the Lord speaks. But it went back to that we had to be obedient to some things. And I'm leaving a ton of details out in that story. But there may be some things that you're wondering why something spiritually isn't happening or maybe why there's resistance. Go back and assess and say, is there an area that I've not obeyed the Lord in? Maybe it was 90% of the way, because that's where I was, 95% of the way, obedience, but that's not obedience. Obedience is to do what you're told. That's what I tell my kids. But it was amazing. As soon as I did what the Lord told me, the, he spoke. It's like, whoa. And the Lord gave me wisdom, and it was a whole season of faith, and we saw God work and do all kinds of cool stuff, but it took obedience like we want to underestimate the value of actual obedience to the lord but when we're facing battles look look in your relationships am i in relationship with somebody that i need to hit exit stage left on i've got to step away from this relationship doesn't mean you don't love that person doesn't mean that you don't pray for that person but it just means i can't be in a real connection with you and i don't have to tell you who that is if you have that person in your life, the Holy Spirit is fully capable of saying, this person, you probably already know. You just don't like the fact that I'm actually saying it. And if that is the case, then that is for you, by the way. So jumping back to Jehoshaphat's story here. So this word from the Lord comes. Seems like a good plan. Sounds good. Let's go with it. We're going to go out tomorrow. We're going to take our, we're going to go get in battle array. We're going to stand up and we're going to watch the Lord fight this battle for us. Sounds good. Then in verse 18, it says, King Jehoshaphat bows low to, with his face to the ground. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same thing, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites from the clans of Kohath and Korah stood to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud shout. We don't have a problem screaming anywhere else or raising our voice anywhere else. But we come to church all of a sudden, we're like, we're real quiet. I don't want to be distracting anybody. I'm going to keep my voice down. If you want breakthrough, you'll get loud. And sometimes you got to raise your voice to the Lord. And not in an angry way, but God, like, I mean, you know, there's praying and then there's praying. A little different. There's singing a song and there's worship. Like there, you know, and so... In verse 21, it says that after consulting the people, the king appoints singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord, praising him for his holy splendor. It says they sang, give thanks to the Lord for uh, his faithful love endures forever. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I'm the, the kingdom of Judah and I'm the people here who've been seeking the Lord, and all of a sudden we have a game plan, sounds good, let's do that. God has spoken clearly. And then all of a sudden the king comes up and says, hey, take all the soldiers and move them back a little bit. We're going to put the band out front. Like, we had a plan. Why are we changing the plan? Because this sounds crazy. Like the pressure has finally gotten to the king. Somebody rescue him before he makes a fool of us. And gets us all killed. But yet, he really had something on the inside of him that says, no, you need to send those who would worship out in front. I don't know what the conversations were like. But they're going to war. They don't need drumsticks. Like, I need a bow and arrow 
not a tuba, like, I'm going to make them go deaf, and then they can't hear each other to strategize. I mean, you know, like, no, this is war. And yet he says, let's put the worship out front. In verse 22, it says, at the very moment that they begin to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir to start fighting amongst themselves. Ultimately, they all destroy each other. That's really what happened. So that the nation of Judah here just stands and watches them fight one another. And then it took them three days to pick up all the stuff. All the goods that were left by all of these soldiers. It says on the fourth day, they had to come back a fourth day just to pick up all the stuff for a battle that they didn't even have to fight. You know, it sounds a lot like Psalms 91. Only with your eyes will you see the destruction of the wicked. But you will be safe in the secret place of the Most High. Funny how that works, isn't it? It's like it happened over here and the Lord said it over here and it says it in other places. It's like God has a plan. And God might know what he's doing. The Bible says that God watches over his word. To make it happen for us. To make it happen in our life. And so what happens is that even, and I believe what happened is Judah went out and began to worship. Is that their worship actually shifted something. Even though they had a word from God, is that their worship actually shifted this situation. And shifted this circumstance. Because it says, at the very moment... It wasn't by chance. It wasn't they just walked up and everybody, you know, the armies are just destroyed and everything's there. It says at the very moment that they begin to lift their voices to God, at the very moment that they begin to worship, that God caused confusion. Let me say it this way. Is that their worship shifted something and God responded to it. And the same is true for you, that when you will begin to worship God, even in the midst of great pressure, even in the midst of great fear, is that spiritually something is working and God begins to move as we begin to worship him. See, we we have to not focus on our situations. We have to focus on God. We can, be a, we can be nervous. We can have things. But we've got to turn our focus, our attention on God. Why? Because if we'll look to him instead of our situations, he can take care of our situations. He really can. I told you this last week, and I'm going to repeat it again, is that worship is spiritual warfare. You know the Lord's Prayer, where it talks about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What happens when we begin to worship is that heaven begins to advance in our life and hell begins to lose. And so how do we practically live out the the Lord's prayer? Let your kingdom come. I'm going to declare that you are God of my life, that you are working on my behalf. And because you're for me, it doesn't matter who's against me. Heaven and all of God's purposes will advance for me and in my life. And hell begins to lose ground. See, God is not looking for a crowd. He's looking for people who will worship. We've been looking at this verse over the last couple of weeks. It's John 4. You can go read it later, but it's 21 through 24. But it says that God is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. We've talked about this, so I won't take time to unpack it. But we've been looking at this and that God is looking for people. He's not looking to pack out a room for vainglory. But he is looking to connect with a a group of people whose hearts are focused on him. 
He's looking for this place. And so what we have to understand, and I'm not just talking about in this room. There's a part of that, but worship is not reserved for sacred places. If we're not careful, we'll begin to think, well, worship is just defined for this room in this moment on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock to 1022. We're going to worship God. If that's your mindset, it's probably not worship. Worship's not defined or reserved for sacred places, but really for one place, and it's in our heart. Worship can only happen here. Really, that's what determines if it's worship. See, far too many Christians, I believe, have a relationship with God, but they have no fellowship with him. Like, let me give you an example, practical. You have family members that you ain't talked to in a decade. You got a relationship with them. Yeah, they're my cousin. Yeah, that's my aunt. That's, I don't know who they are, but we related to them somehow. We all got them too. But yeah, you got friends that you talk to every week. You may not have a relationship or a defined um, title for them, but you have fellowship with them. And I believe far too many times that we as believers have settled for a relationship. Oh, God's my God, but we've missed the whole relationship. And part of how we can connect with this is through worship. So it's much deeper than just even our our outward going through the motions of things. I mean, we can get caught up in that trap. So I encourage you, when you come together like at a service like this, but even in your day-to-day life, when things begin to hit, when things begin to, to stack up and those things and the pressure comes on, our response is to worship God in the midst of the moment. Why? Because if I will focus my attention where it needs to be, that will open the door for God to work. I'm inviting God into that moment of my life. And this isn't theory. This isn't just kind of loosely imagine. There's reality here. Look, I've worshipped God through tears, through prayers, through shouts. I mean, I don't mean a good shout. I mean like an angry shout. Like, God, this isn't fair. And I didn't do anything to deserve this. And I didn't deserve to be treated like this. And I didn't, we can all throw our pity parties. And we all have our moments. And we all get overwhelmed. But something happens when we redirect our focus from ourself and turn it to the Lord. And I say, God, I don't care about how I've been treated. I don't care about the situation. You're bigger than what I'm facing. And I'm going to worship you. Before, because I've got gratitude. I know the one in whom I believed. I know the one. And and so I know him and I know his character and I know his nature. Why? Because he's revealed it in his word to me. If you can find it in the scriptures, God will do it for you. So how do you know that? Because the Bible says he's no respecter of person. He won't do for you what he won't do for me. He won't do for me what he wouldn't do for you. That's what the Bible says. So it's much more than, but again, worship is much more than an outward appearance. Now I want you to listen to this statement. What God desires most is not what comes out of our mouth's pronouncement. 
What we say with our lips, that's not what's important to God. But what is important is what our hearts will proclaim. In other words, I can sing a song and yet my mind be thinking something totally different. No, he's looking for that heart connection. And so it's important. And so we're going to step back into a time of worship. We've been doing this over the last couple of weeks. Um, but I'm going to read you one verse as the band's coming back up. And, and they're going to lead us. They're not going to worship for us. They're going to help lead us into, what, into this moment. But I believe that if we'll begin to worship God, we'll begin to put our attention. Like forget about your week. You got 10 minutes. Surely you can clear your, your schedule for the next 10 minutes. You can clear your mind for the next 10 minutes. It's a mental discipline. And focus, you're like, well, I don't know what to focus on. Focus on the words that you're about to sing and what they really mean because they have reality for you. And so I want to read you a scripture out of Psalms 51 as I'm wrapping up this morning. I'm going to read this out of the message translation. I'm going to read verses 16 and 17, but it says, Going through the motions does not please you, and a flawless performance is nothing to you. It says, I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart-shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. One of the purest forms of worship is when we forget about ourselves. We stop thinking about us. We stop thinking about what we've got going on. We stop thinking about our situations and we focus on God. And what happens when we can make that shift, we've just stepped over from just being a natural person concerned about natural things to being a spiritual person who is focused on spiritual things. And when I focus on the spiritual things that the Lord has for me, one of them being worship, it's not all, but it is part but when I begin to worship God, what he will fight my battles. And some of you have been wrestling, trying to figure out, how do I get past this? How do I get through this? How do I, when's this season going to come to an end? This is what I can tell you. You may be in a season of spiritual drought and of dryness. And you may say, man, that all sounds great. And I wish that were true. That season can end the moment you determine it to. Because God is not withholding anything from you. And I say that as somebody who has been in those seasons going, God, where are you at? Why aren't you doing things? But my heart is what's stopping it. But when I come to the Lord and I begin to, and many times it's in times of worship. And I really just forget about my season, my moment. God, take care of me. I'm like, God, I'm just going to worship you. I'm going to focus on you. Father, I thank you that I am going to see your goodness. I thank you for your grace. And I, I begin to thank God for everything he has done for me, not what I want him to do for me. My heart begins to shift, and then I can begin to worship him with, all, with my whole heart, and he responds. And then answers come, and then breakthroughs come, and seasons change, and, and the presence of God is renewed in my life. Why? It's exactly what it says here. Is that I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. So here's a simple little truth. Is the only way to leave the presence of God not full with him is when we come full of ourself. And sometimes we've got to empty ourselves out. We've got to put all this stuff aside and just say, God, I need you to fill me up. Because the Bible says he will fill you to the full.
And we can do that through worship. And so uh, this morning, I'm going to invite our prayer team up.